You are listening to Myth Behaving, a podcast with a little bit of attitude on the literary world. Won't you come Myth Behave with us? Hello and welcome to Myth Behaving. This is episode number nine of Myth Behaving and we're recording on Sunday, April the 28th. I'm Carla Clifton and joined with me today is my normal co-host, Mayor Wilson. Mayor, how are you today? I'm fine, Carla. It is absolutely gorgeous here. Is- I should be outside. It's beautiful here. What, what temperature is it? Oh, I have no idea. It's probably in the low 80s, but it's oh, just wow. absolutely gorgeous. And my my um, my trees that have been dead all winter are blossomed, and the rose bushes that I never trim are just tons of roses all over them. So all these people that say you have to prune your roses back to like these little stubs, <laughs> mine are like five five feet, six feet tall. <laughs> oh, well, that's okay. That's okay. That's so fabulous. Well, I went today and um, bought, I got the deal of the century. We're, we're trying to have our own little orchard out here in the boonies. Y'all know I live in the country. And I bought, um, they had plum trees, the prettiest little plum trees. And I usually don't buy those sort of things from Walmart. But they were like $20, okay? And I was going to pay the $20, but then I saw a sticker that said 50% off. So I got them for $9.94. Can you believe that? A whole tree? You can't go, no, yeah, you can't go wrong on that. Can't go wrong on that. I have my little pair of plum trees, so. Yeah. Well, listeners, each myth-behaving show features a special guest from the literary world. It can be a writer, a publisher, agent, editor, anyone else connected with the world of publishing. Plus, we have several special segments related to reading or writing. Shh. Be very quiet when writing books in the library of a misbehavior. That means it's time for something from the Library of a Myth Behavior, and today I'm recommending South of Burnt Rocks, West of the Moon by G.J. Berger. This is a historical fiction set over 2,000 years ago in Iberia. It traces the story of what happens when Rome breaks a treaty and seeks to subdue the villages in Iberia, and our heroine is Lavena, and uh, G.J. can correct me. If I'm wrong on that later, she's a young woman who is trained to become a warrior and she'll give any modern heroine a run for their money. That is for sure. I read this book. It is absolutely captivating. Well, you just spilled the beans. I did. Normal. Our special guest today is G.J. Berger. Welcome to the show, G.J., and thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you. This is a treat for me. And I'm I'm honored. I'm truly honored to be part of your show and to uh, tell you what I can about whatever you'd like to know. Fabulous. I'm particularly happy to have G.J. on today because G.J. is actually a friend of mine and um, a, an author friend of mine over probably the last year and a half, two years now. And I actually got to meet him back in, what was that, February, Carla? I think so. February. And I actually got to meet him and uh, he and another friend and I met up in Laguna, which is one of my favorite places in California and had a fabulous afternoon. So I'm, I'm very happy to have you on the, the show with us today. It's really a 
treat. And I have to tell you, Burnt Rocks is absolutely, it's beautifully written. It's beautifully edited. Um, my hardcover print copy is as professional and and beautifully put together as anything I've seen or had from a major publisher. You did a fantastic job on this. Um, JJ, would you please share with us when you started writing and what took you into self-publishing? I started writing probably before I can remember. Um, I do remember that in fifth grade, I wrote a play that was actually performed. It was just performed for other fifth graders. But hey, I wrote it. Um, Accounts. Yeah. Later, um, sort of in my early life, um, I just naturally never was afraid of writing. And if there was a little writing contest at the school or something or somebody needed something written by one of the students, you know, my hand would kind of go up. Um, then um, in college, I was editor of the college newspaper for a while. Um, and then I'd say life took over. Um, I needed to make a living. Um, uh, you know, I had growing sons and so on. And I, I didn't really come back to writing in a serious way until both our sons had left the house. And all the time that had been spent on soccer or rolling around in the playroom or uh, helping them with homework uh, was now free. It was empty. And roughly 10, 11 years ago, I said, hey, if you're ever going to write, you better start now. And um, I wrote one novel that was a mystery thriller, psychological thriller. It drew a lot of agent attention. I got a lot of requests for full manuscripts, got a lot of excited emails off partials, but it, I, I couldn't land an agent with it. Um, then I wrote a second novel, which was a deep historical, somewhat related to Burnt Rocks. And uh, it got a lot of agent love very quickly and landed a big New York agent. Um, she... Uh, worked hard trying to sell it. Um, she worked hard trying to sell Burnt Rocks. Um, now, about a year and a half ago, um, I had a call from an editor at the publisher of The Hunger Games and the publisher of all the Harry Potter books in the United States. It was a call at 7 o'clock in the morning. It was one of these calls... George, I'm editor so-and-so at so-and-so. I just love your book. How long have you been writing? You, 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 you must have been writing all your life. It's so fabulous. It's so wonderful. I'm going to take it to acquisitions on Wednesday, she said. This was like a Friday. Uh, we chatted for quite a while, me still in my pajamas, she at 10 o'clock in her office in Manhattan. And uh, she went to acquisitions on Monday both my agent and I got a email a day or two later uh, telling us that she felt gutted because they turned her down. Um, and four days later, I got a Dear John email from my agent. Um, 
and, and the, you know, that wasn't the only big house that was really excited over that novel. There, there was another editor at another big house that uh, asked for multiple rewrites and reviews and took it to acquisitions and um, also got turned down. So here I am. I've run the drill. I've run the, the traditional path drill uh, across three different novels. Come close. Um, I've come close at big houses. And what do I do? Do I start all over again, or what the heck do I do? And um, I, I kind of started down the traditional path again for a few months. And I quickly drew um, five requests from agents for full manuscripts. And I think one of the kickers to have me start to look at self-publishing in a serious way is that is that now more than a year later of those five full manuscripts out with agents at their request I've only heard back from one wow yeah it's a wow to me too and and so along about now a year ago I started reading and thinking and about myself, about what I really wanted. And I I sort of came to the conclusion that I didn't I didn't care about the money. I didn't care about awards. I didn't care about uh, whether or not my book would land face out in a Barnes and Noble store, face out in the front window. I wanted people to read my stuff. And there is, in the modern era, there is nothing standing in the way between writers and readers. The, the two level of gatekeepers that we are so bound up with, first the agents and then the editors at publishers, writers can bypass both gatekeepers and go, and go straight to readers. Now, that this what I'm going to say next still still astounds me. I made the decision to try to self-publish in about June of last year, and I was out with Burnt Rocks in ebook form, in softcover form, and in hardcover form in October and November. Now that's another wow. Isn't that a wow? Yeah, it, it is a me. wow. It, it still is. And it, it's very doable under the right circumstances. I was extremely fortunate in I, I, over the years that I've been writing. I've done a fair amount of beta reading and gone to lots of conferences and been in writers groups. And, and a, a woman in Australia for whom I beta read three or four years ago emailed me one day and said, we – we, she and some other writers, are forming a self-publishing group. Would you like to join us? She's really good with uh, websites and technical stuff. She's a wonderful writer. Um, uh, she's very savvy about marketing and so forth. And, and the other person with whom she works is in New Zealand and is also a wonderful, wonderful writer, has, has written many award-winning short stories, does reviews for the Historical Novel Society, 
And those two invited me to kind of join them on a self-publishing effort, a joint effort. And any book that we three think is worthy, um, we we ask it to join our little group that we call Writer's Choice. And we have a logo and a banner and so forth, and it gets a Writer's Choice medallion right on the cover. So when that when when those ladies in New Zealand and Australia asked me to join their sort of co-op for self-publishing, that was the little boost I needed to, at least with Burnt Rocks, say goodbye to the gatekeepers and say, I'm going to get to readers directly. And um, after I kind of made that decision through them, I found a wonderful cover designer. She She's done the cover for Burnt Rocks, and I know uh, I don't know if both of you have seen it, but but I you know it, it may not be the best cover that's out there, but no one has said it doesn't look professional and it isn't appropriate to the novel and so forth. And so I was very lucky there with the cover, and it's it has the right colors and it has the right sort of intensity that I need for that novel, um, and. Both these women who are excellent writers and one is a reviewer and so forth are, you know, they're very keen editors as well. So they found, they each found maybe a dozen typos and that kind of thing in my novel. And and then the other thing that I sort of um, lucked out with is through another network, I found some really good typesetters who did the formatting. Uh, for both the e-downloads and the paper versions of my novel, um, and they they uh, they helped me coordinate with the book manufacturers, the printers, uh, the cover, the cover flap text, the spine widths, the paper color, the margins, the fonts, the spacing, all of that, all those little details, they helped me coordinate. And uh, and with their help, um, four months, and I had a, I had, you know, something really that I was very, very pleased with, and um, out it went to readers. Now, another little while on the, on the road to self-publishing. Um, in the first wave of readers, the uh, uh, most satisfying aspect to me was that no one found a glitch or a typo. I was so scared that somebody would say, oh, it's a great book, George, but you know, on page 293, it seems like there's a paragraph missing. I would have died. Yeah. I would have just died. Or on or on page seventy two, I found seven typos all of a sudden. Again, I would have died. And the first wave of readers, I got none of that. Now, a a a friend of ours read it, loved it, gave it to her boyfriend to read, and she said, "George, you know, I'm dyslexic. It's taken me forty years to read." almost as well as a normal person who's not dyslexic but I still read very slowly and I read every word I I've had to force myself to read every word 
And here's a list of some typos that I found. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> However, one of them was not a typo. It was just my cadence. One of them was a letter on the cover where the two inks bled through each other. So on the on the hardback version, uh, the, the, it looks like there's a misspelling, but it's really just a bleed through of the inks. And so she really found four legitimate typos. And they they are so easy for the eye to miss. So, so easy. And those four typos have now been fixed. That's oh, another that's great. That's awesome. Because that's, that's a, the, that, the advantage of being self-published. That's another, that's another great advantage of being self-published. I got together with my, you know, typesetters again, and we fixed those. And, and uh, for the Kindle, it cost me $15 to uh, upload a new version. And for the paper books, I think I paid a, an additional $40 setup fee or something. Um, and that, and that was it to fix those four typos. Wow. That's fabulous. And you know, I'm not, obviously if you go with a normal publisher who, who might have a print run of, you know, the numbers vary, but say 1000 to 10,000, uh, copies, you find some typos, you're stuck with that first print run until you do a second edition. So that's the, that's the short version of my writing life up to this point and why I went the self-publishing route. Well, one of the things I, I love about that story is, is you make it sound so doable and it is. And I think that's an important lesson that, um, would be authors could take away from, from your story and, and can learn from that is that it is doable, but you do mention, and I think this is important to stress the editing, the, the, um, getting a professional cover, the professional job on the formatting, all of those are very important. And let's face it, most self publishers that are doing their own books, they don't, they don't take that care. And, right. and that, right. that, or maybe not most, but so I shouldn't say most, uh, because it, in, it used to be most. Now we've gotten so far into quality in self publishing that it's become some, I think. I think let, last yeah, year let, it was most, now we're some. Yeah, let, let, let me add to that. Um, I, I am incredibly lucky in one respect. Um, my wife, is an English professor and uh, has has given so many hours to my writing that you know right here at home that that I, I'm just so blessed and in the very last edit after it was formatted uh, for print copies um, no in the very last edit before the print copies, I sat at my computer while she read out loud. And the out loud reading, along with both sets of eyes looking at it, caught a lot of little errors. And I, and I, think, I think that uh, it, it is essential uh, for a self-published work to have that kind of close attention to every word because readers are terribly impatient 
um, word of mouth among readers is everything. And if there are some glitches, some bad typos, some formatting problems, particularly early in the book, um, they'll put it down and they'll move on. And with services like Amazon where you can read, like on my book, four chapters for free right online, you know, in the look inside feature of Amazon. Well, if there are a bunch of typos or formatting glitches in the first four chapters, nobody's going to buy it. So that, yeah. that, that aspect of a clean, easy-to-read, well-formatted manuscript uh, is very, very important for self-publishing. Then the other thing that's really important, and I didn't know this until about a, you know three months after mine was was available, is the early reviews, particularly for a self-published person, self-published author, are vitally important. Uh, when someone goes to buy a book, they'll pull it up on the Barnes & Noble website or on the Amazon website or on Kobu or Smashwords or someplace or on Goodreads. And if, if you've got some ones and twos sitting there uh, with one and two review ratings and, and uh, discouraging or bad words along with them, you're, 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 uh, you might as well start over, give it a new cover, give it a new title, and do it under a pen name because you're in serious trouble if that happens. And I was, again, very fortunate. All my early reviews from both people who I know, uh, some distant acquaintances, and total strangers, none of them was lower than a four with very nice words. That's awesome. That's awesome. But it is. It's a quality book. And and that's one of the things that impresses me. And, and I, I'd like to think that I, we can hold you up as a, as a standard for people to say, okay, this is what you want. You want to self-publish? This is the lesson to learn um, from you because you've done it. You've done all of the things right. You, you had it formatted. You had it uh, edited and had it edited well. You, you had a professional cover. And I think that's the lesson that we want to take out of here um, so that so that self-publishing continues its upward spiral and it is becoming more and more and more respected. And that, that uh, stigma that used to be there a couple of years ago is, is fading as more people begin to self-publish. I was reading something just the other day that Dave Mamet is, David Mamet is um, doing some self-publishing as well. And that's a, a Broadway playwright and I think that's important when we have that these levels these high levels to aspire to I think it's I think self-publishing is just on its way up it really is and and I think it is becoming as respected as it deserves to be the uh, stories of a self-published book either outperforming a traditional book or Becoming a, a, a monster uh, traditional book, traditionally published book, are, you, you know, those stories are everywhere. Um, we can all start with the biggest bestseller of the last two or three years, Fifty Shades of Grey. 
it started out as a self-published book. Uh, and someone uh, sent me an email not too long ago listing the top selling books for a particular time period, the 10 top sellers. Four of them were self-published, four of the 10. Six were traditionally published. So it, it's definitely the, a, um, almost a life-saving way for authors to connect with readers. And if they make a connection, if, if readers uh, are enthralled, are, are taken away, or get wonderful information, um, they'll talk to other readers. And, and, and you know, the, the author's life is at last fulfilled without uh, total reliance on the traditional gatekeepers. I love your term for that, too. Which one? Your gatekeepers. Oh yeah, yeah. And, and they have and they have been it until self-publishing of the last few years with with platforms like Amazon and Barnes and Noble and Smashwords and others. Um, they're they were the gatekeepers for writers, and if you didn't get through the gates, it was very difficult, if not impossible, to connect to readers. It's as if, you know, a handful of people in London and Manhattan and Frankfurt uh, decided what everybody got to read. Not readers deciding what they got to read, but those people deciding what everybody got to read. And that's, that's no longer the case. Absolutely. It's time for MythPrint, Tips and Tricks of the Industry. Well, it's that time again for another one of our special segments. Mythprint includes a basic tip concerning writing, marketing, or anything else to do with the industry. GT, you do such a great job of explaining what goes on with self-publishing. Do you have any additional tips that you'd like to share um, with our audience um, on self-publishing? There are two that... Um sort of, to me, rise to the top. Um, if a self-publishing work is going to connect with a decent number of readers, it must do whatever it does very well. If, if, it, if it's a how-to book, um, it must explain how to do something very well. If it's a novel, it it's gotta be it's gotta connect to readers at a level that's deeper than just oh this is good writing or oh this is interesting. It it must really be a grabber at some level. Um, without that, uh, you know, a self-published work might might land on the desk of a few family members and friends and won't go any further. It, it's gotta be good. Um, a, uh, a person I've gotten to know who, who knows the self-publishing world intimately, uh, describes one writer <clears throat> of a nonfiction work that was very impressive. And the author put a lot of money into it. And it, it was somewhat technical, had, had different colors on the interior, which makes the production of it very expensive. 
and she spent a lot of money putting it together. I won't mention the amount, but a lot. She managed to sell 19 copies. Ouch. Because it wasn't well done. Ouch. And, you know, that's kind of the stories that, you know, as someone that is not in the industry, because I'm not in the industry. I love the industry. I love reading. But I'm, you know, I'm not a writer. I'm not a publisher. I just talk. So, you know, <laughs> um, to get to know people and to get to know what they do, that has been one of the my biggest fears about self-publishing is all the horror stories that you hear about people publishing books on their own, and they're not good at all. Yes. So and, you and, don't and, know what you're getting. Right. Right. Well, interesting comment you make. I was going to mention, and now's a great time to mention it, there are more and more self-publishing review organizations cropping up uh, that are very reliable. Um, there's a group called Awesome Indies, Awesome Independence, Awesome Indies, AI. It has a wonderful website. It has a very rigorous uh, editing process to be admitted, so to speak, to awesome indies. Um, and it, uh, once a week or so, adds a novel or two or three um, that have been thoroughly vetted uh, with a standard that is, this is as good as a good published, traditionally published work. The, the plot, the characters, the writing, the copy editing, the pacing of it, uh, it has no holes and is very well done and, and is a worthwhile read. And I was fortunate enough to, Burt Rocks was fortunate enough to be accepted to Awesome Indies and I'm now an occasional reviewer for Awesome Indies. And I've got to say, I've, I've reviewed two self-published books one I stopped at about page two um, because by the time I got to page two I had encountered 14 uh, to be verbs that is is are were just very weak verbs and I was on page two and I got into 14 and I couldn't read on I don't know whether that book was accepted, but I don't think it was. And then I read another one that was totally enthralling, L literary fiction that was just, after I put it down, I wanted to keep reading. But, you know, life got in the way, and I had to put it down, and I came back to it, and, and it got accepted by Awesome Indies. And I later learned, and as I was reading it, I thought, my, this author is poetic. She's truly poetic. So after I finished... I Googled the author, and sure enough, she's an award-winning poet and and publishes a lot of poetry, and it, it's a very worthy book. And this self-published work of hers is now available through Awesome Indies, and, and people can rely on its quality. So that, that sort of thing is happening more and more to help people like Carla and readers and uh, uh, figure out you know what's decent and and maybe 
maybe in time, organizations like Awesome Indies will become the gatekeepers. Yeah, and, you know, that's the sort of thing that I would like to see is when I'm going out there looking for a specific source or, like I was telling our readers um, last, or our listeners last um, uh, podcast, one of the things that really attracts me to a book is the cover. And I have seen your cover, and I think it's fabulous. Um, But that's what draws my eye. I mean, that's the first thing that I that catches me is as, as I'm going through, whether I'm walking through Barnes and Noble or whether I'm perusing online and on Amazon, there's many times I go on Amazon and just go through book by book by book to see what's suggested and that sort of thing. And I would really like a source that will tell me, you know, if this is a self-published book, you know, is it worth me buying? You know, yes. I mean, yes. an ebook that's, you know, not too bad, $5 or whatever, you know, $10, I don't feel so bad, but I don't want to waste my time because my, my, my time is precious to me. And, and if it's, you know, garbage, I don't really want to waste my time or my money. So I'm glad to know about that. Thank you for sharing that. You know, JJ, writing is a process of, of so many things. What about your entire, and you've, you've told us just some fabulous information here, but what about this process do you love the most? Oh, I, I, I love the writing the most. Um, when I finish something that makes me laugh or raises my own goosebumps or, you know, tears me up or just causes me to stand back and say, wow, where did that come from? That's, that, that, that's the experience that, you know, people who create anything, whether it's a movie script, whether it's a novel, uh, whether it's a, a piece of pottery, uh, whether it's a painting, that's, that's the, maybe the creator's aha moment that, that people who create fully understand and that that's the most fun in this process. Well, that's cool. Is there anything about the process that you don't like? Yes. And forgive me. For I love the way he said that. Yes. <laughs> you know, forgive me for saying this because we're spending a lot of time doing it. I, I really don't like promoting myself. Um, I, 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 from, from a very early age, I had drummed into me, um, that, that your actions ought to speak for you, not, not your, not your bragging or touting about yourself. Um, and you know, the human experience is that we, we tend to turn people off who tout themselves and, and I, I don't like having to self-promote. Um, you, you will not find on my website or anywhere stuff, you know, that says, oh, you know, buy my book and you got to buy my book. I, I just, that's what, it, I, I, that's the part, I, as you can tell from my halting response, 
That's the part that does not come easily to me. Oh my gosh, you sound so much like Mayor. I keep telling her to put uh, the buy button, you know, on her website i'm going you've got to promote yourself because you know if you don't do it it won't get done and she goes but i can't you know yeah i can't i I, I can't i can't either (laughs) and and i see i've got a friend who thinks like me carla (laughs) and i i honestly believe that from lots of reading and my own experience and the experience of other people um uh Authors need others to promote them. And it, uh, Malcolm Gladwell, who wrote The Tipping Point, writes about um, things when they really become hot. And all of a sudden, you know, he, he writes about sneakers and, and uh, you know, van sneakers or different kinds of sneakers. And all of a sudden they become really hot and everybody's got to have them. And those tipping points come about not because of promotion by the product maker or producer, but they come about because there's a group of influential people who really promote them and tout them and and insist on buying them or wearing them or whatever. And and then other people really take notice and the thing takes off. And and that's what good writing and, and authors need. They need they need other people to tout their work. But they also need those people that have that wonderful work to have that information in a place that the rest can refer to it. For example, when I get all excited and I tell people about Mayer's book, because I absolutely love her cover and I love the book and um, I'm, I'm one of those friends that I want to spread the love. Okay? Yes. But yes. it, you can't click on, on her website, any place to go buy the book. And I'm like, put it on there so I can at least say, oh, go to this website and look. You can watch her trailer and you can read a little bit about the book and you can buy it right off her website. And, and I'm going, yeah. wait, well, maybe not. <laughs> well, I, I, I have to confess, I have links on my website uh-huh. to where you can buy it, but I don't have the buy now button. If no, I, I don't have the buy now button, but I have a link because she made me have it. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but see, she takes care of me. This is the whole thing. I've got I've got Carla to look out for me. Oh, you guys are great. Anyway, authors work in so many different ways. GJ, are you a planner that outlines everything, making extensive notes, or are you a pantser flying by the seat of your pants and letting the book go wherever it will? I'm in between. Ah. I- I don't outline anything. When I start a novel, and I've now finished three novels, and I'm deep into a fourth, um, I start with my main character, and I have a pretty good idea of my main character. I have a pretty good idea of where they are, what they're confronting, what's going to happen to them in the opening scene. And when I write that, from then on, each word pushes the next. Each sentence pushes the next sentence. Each paragraph pushes the next paragraph. Now, with historicals, I, I, I sort of cheat a little bit because I, I know the, 
the tides of history. I know the evolution of what happens to these people, to this village, to this country, to this territory, who the big players are. And that becomes my plot structure. And I don't deviate from that. So in South of Burnt Rocks, you know, the, the tides of the Romans versus the local Iberian Celts, those things actually happened in, roughly in the way that I've described them, and I haven't deviated from that. So with historical fiction, I, I, my outline is in part, my large outline is in part given to me. If I were writing like Mayer writes, uh, then, then I wouldn't be able to rely on that. I'd have to make it up as I go. Which I do. <laughs> there you go. But I love, I love the history that, I mean, it was so obvious in your book that you have a passion for history, that you love history, and you could, that, that came through, and that you loved this time uh, period. And, and I, I really want to know what comes next. What's your next project that we can expect from you? What do I get to read from you next, GJ? Yeah, it's, it's actually already written, and I'm, I'm sort of now thinking about um, what I do next to get it out. Uh, it's the story of hey, – let me back up a little bit. Early on, I became fascinated with the general out of Carthage. Carthage was a, then a world power in the Mediterranean, the center of which was where Tunisia is now. Um, sort of the southern central Mediterranean. Uh, the most famous general from Carthage is Hannibal, Hannibal and the elephants. And this next story that is done will be the story not of Hannibal, but of his main elephant driver, the, the person out of India who leads his elephants, Hannibal's elephants, up the Alps and down the backside of Rome. And and uh, the title of that, the, at least the working title that I think I'll stick with, is Four Nails and the Elephant Boy. Four Nails is not four nails like the nails you pound into a wall. In in old elephant lore, if an Indian elephant was born with only four nails on its front feet instead of five nails, uh, that was a, a very bad sign. And even, even into the 1900s, if an elephant in India was born with four nails, elephant merchants would glue an extra nail onto its front feet and try to sell it so that it had the proper five nails. Of course, pretty soon that nail would slough off and it would be revealed that it only had four nails. And in old elephant lore, that's very bad. Elephants with four nails are bad. They, they sometimes go mad. They become rogue killers. Well, of course, my elephant boy out of India meets up with an elephant that has only four nails, hence four nails and the elephant boy. And uh, this elephant becomes the leader of all the elephants and is a magnificent beast. And he, he, my hero, saves that elephant from slaughter uh, because he doesn't believe in this myth. He knows he's got a wonderful elephant, and, he's, and he saves it from being slaughtered and meets up again with him in 
in Hannibal's army, and together they ride up over the Alps and down the backside of Rome. And the, there's a connection to burnt rocks in that Hannibal uh, uh, bought the services of a lot of mercenaries along the way, including Celtic warriors from Iberia. And the leader of those Celtic warriors is Lavina's father as a young man. And he, as the tribal leader in charge of 7,000 Iberian Celtic warriors, has quite a set to with Hannibal. Because in actual historical fact, um, those two didn't like each other very much. And I'm, I'm not going to go any further, but, but Cinerix, Lavina's father, is in that is in that next novel. So he is an actual historical figure then. Cinerex not is. not by Perse? name, not, not by, by name. name, but there was a tribal leader of the Celtic Iberians who had quite a squabble uh in his alliance with Hannibal. See, I and, love that. That sounds fascinating. It really does. And, and I don't I don't know his name and all the history stuff I've read has not given me his name, so I gave him the name Cinerex, which is an old Celtic Iberian name. Oh, it works. It's 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 a great story. It is. It is indeed. Well, we've seen a lot of changes in the industry in the last couple of years. How do you feel about those changes, and and how ha- how they've impacted your own work, and how do you feel about all of those changes? Well, as as you can tell so far, I think I can be short with this answer. I feel liberated. <laughs> I, am, <laughs> I am very. That's a great answer. <laughs> Absolutely, it's true too. It's true too. It it's freed so many um, brilliant authors to get their work out there and 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 not be um, stuck. And and I love that about the the indie, the whole indie scene. The myth number. And now it's time for Mythnomer. That is our word or phrase for today. Uh, today was tough because I could have gone two ways, but I've decided that today's phrase is self-publishing. And we touched about this a little bit already, GJ, but do you have anything else to add ab- about the, the, the self-publishing? Yeah, let me, let, let me give you something that, that I think is meaningful. Um, Sort of the tough question that I don't get is uh, would go something like this. Every year there are published in the United States somewhere on the order of 800,000 books um, or 2 million worldwide. Uh, Berger, how the heck do you expect to get yours out to readers? when it's part of this tidal wave of books that is just swamping any reader who might be interested. Um, and that, that, that's a daunting prospect still. And maybe in times gone by, the gatekeepers were useful because when you picked up something published by, you know, I won't mention names, but, but a brand that we all recognize, you kind of assumed that it, would be a good read and it would be worth 
an ebook download price or a hardcover price. And uh, <laughs> with 2.2 million books worldwide and 800,000 in the U.S., um, you know, that's a tough, that's superficially a, a, a monster tide that you have to, you have to stand out in. And, um, and you know, I, I suppose you, Carla, and Mayor should talk to me about my thoughts of that in two or three years from now. And we will indeed. And, and, <laughs> that sounds like and, a good idea. And, and, then, and then I'll have a little more insight into, into that question. Excellent. Well, now we're going to get to the fun stuff. If you could have a well, the other stuff was fun. I mean, this is really fun though because this is okay. This is you. Are you promise? I promise. I promise. Okay. If you could have an dinner party with any seven people, living, dead, or fictional, who would you include? Oh wow! Wow, I can have fun with this one. Absolutely. You know. Let me let me think about that for a second. But I I, I kind of see three people, and they come as a as a trio. You can't have one without the other two. Uh, at at the dinner table. Okay. Assume this dinner table has seven guests plus me, so there's eight total. That is correct. So we got three on one side, three on the other side, and then somebody at each head. Well, three of them. I'd, I'd kind of like to have the Prophet Muhammad, but before you say anything, on one side of the Prophet Muhammad, I want Gloria Steinem, and on the other side, I want Margaret Thatcher. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> I love it. I, Keep going. And I, and I just want to sit back and and listen. Oh, my goodness. Okay, well, keep going. You have four more to go. Yeah. Now, immediately across from those three, I'd like General George Patton. Oh, my. And, and I want him with his sidearm, just in case Mohammed or somebody steps out of line. <laughs> so he can, he can shoot him right there on the spot. <laughs> and I want George Patton because George Patton was a deep lover of history. And he himself believed deeply in reincarnation, and he wrote poems about his sense that he had fought in major battles in times past and, in, and had been present in major conflicts. And I don't know this for a fact, but I wouldn't be surprised if some of those major conflicts involved, you know, big wars between the Muslim world and the other world, whatever that was. So I want him across from those three. Okay. Three more. Um, then to his left, um, I want Thurgood Marshall. Now, you know, former Supreme Court justice. And I, I want him because he came up in the United States as a lawyer where all his clients were about to be lynched and where he himself was about to be lynched because he dared go into southern courts where he, as their lawyer, couldn't drink from the same drinking fountain as everybody else. 
and he stood in front of white judges and tried to explain to them how his clients were innocent to begin with and certainly didn't deserve the death penalty. And and I've just been such an admirer of Thurgood Marshall that he, he doesn't fit with the other four, but I want him there. Okay. Two more. Uh, to Bradley's right, uh, to Patton's right, I want Doris Lessing. I just love her. She's the, she's a, a writer of women's fiction. She was a, she was a, a women's lib author before the women's lib movement. And she wrote deeply about the problem of overchoice for women, the conflict between being uh, caregivers and nurturers and mothers and wives and also, you know, having having their own lives and using using the other parts of all their talents that were in such conflict when she was a younger writer in the 40s and 50s. And she won a Nobel Prize for Literature in 2007. And I've had occasion to read her acceptance speech. And it is just, it, it is an enthralling speech that uh, every writer deserves to go back to once in a while just for its its inspiration and 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 her her wonderful writing although this was a speech and then the last the last person at my dinner table probably across from me and I I say this with reverence and respect and some trepidation is we know so much about Jesus that has been given to us by others and virtually all of it by men I would like to have Mary, mother of Jesus, as the last person at this dinner. I really would like to, if if she's if she were willing, um, to hear what she had to say about the life and times of her son. Wow, what a dinner party! That's a dinner party and a half. I love how GJ had them all placed. <laughs> I don't think anybody else has had placards before, but that was fabulous. I thought it was great because it It was awesome. Sense. It made so much sense. I want to go to that party. I do too. (laughs) I think we all want to go to that party. I'm going to check my mail on Monday and see which ones have accepted. (laughs) There you go. JJ, what question do you never get asked that you wish someone would ask, and what would you answer? Uh, I've alluded to it, and that it's the question of, Berger, how the hell do you think your book is going to, you know, get get picked up by readers in this tidal wave of 800,000 in the U.S. and 2 million in the world that are coming out every year? Right. And I, I, I have a two-part answer. One part is... I've learned recently that every month there are 116,000 Google searches for historical fiction. Wow. And every month there are 175,000 Google searches for thrillers. So in a year's time, more than a million people are searching for historical fiction. And I kind of say, you know, one reader at a time. I'm I, I, again not going the 
traditional publishing route, I'm not worried about my publisher dumping me. Or that's or true. Not, <laughs> this or, is true. Or not being in serious trouble. <laughs> or not doing another print run. Because that, because I can control that. And so, in you know, if somebody were to ask me, how the hell do you think you're going to succeed? I'll just say one reader at a time, patience. Um, that there are still many, many readers interested in historical fiction, and um, I'm I'm willing to let the market decide. And if that's it, a great if, answer, great, and, and that to me that's probably the only. And the other thing that I kind of imagine in that scenario is, okay, imagine a traditionally published and promoted book getting out and its first Amazon reviews were one and two stars with very bad write-ups. And then imagine a self-published book going out and its first one or two reviews were five stars with wonderful write-ups. Which author is going to feel better? Which publisher is going to feel better? Yeah. And 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 so be it. I'll just I'll just take my chances and let the market decide. Bravo, bravo. <laughs> I think it's a wise way to look at things. Um, going on, everyone has their own personal myths. Things a lot of people think about us that may or may not be true. Their very own personal myth behavior, if you will. What myth behavior do people believe about you that is absolutely not true? Yeah, pe people who know me just a little bit or meet me or something, you know, as Mayor has. Here I am, a, a an older white guy mm -hmm. who... who appears pretty fluent in English and it's just kind of your standard image of an older white guy. Well, um, English is probably my third language. By the time I got to high school, I had gone to 11 schools at least. Um, I was raised by a single mom. We were so poor that there were evenings when we had uh, mayonnaise, and ketchup sandwiches for supper. Um, I sort of had a roustabout life um, that has taken me many, many places doing many, many things. Uh, and part of those places were to, you know, old monuments and terrain that hasn't been walked by too many people, um, at least not today's people. I've had multiple careers. And um, and that has been such a wonderful background for writing, and and it allows me to relax about my writing. Um, my mom, you know, had came close to perishing when I was very very little multiple times, and um, uh, every every day is a gift, and I'm and I'm thankful every day, and it. It makes me so relaxed about this journey that I'm on now. Um, it, it, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I just feel blessed about life because of the hard road that she had and that, 
that we both had early in life that everything's good now. That's a beautiful answer. Very beautiful well, answer. But it, let me ask you part two of this question. What myth behavior do people believe about you that is true? People who get to know me a little bit um, soon discover that I'm a pop music junkie. And, uh, <laughs> and, and one little story out of that is uh, in my regular day job, I, I was given the ta a kind of human resources task. And I won't, I won't tell you the kind of work because it's, it's not pertinent. Um, but one of the things I had to do was check on people who were joining our, our business to make sure there was nothing in their background that would interfere with um, our mission and what we do and so forth. And there was a young man who had worked in New York who joined us, um, and his business um, provided a service to some pretty well-known um, music and entertainment people. So I saw this list of the folks he had worked some with at the prior business before he joined us, and I called him up and I said, say, Peter, we'll call him Peter, um, I don't think you can stay here. He goes, what? No, there's a problem with your background. Oh, my God, what is it? I said, um, well, it's this Eileen Lang thing. I, I think you have to get me a meeting with Eileen Lang so that I can talk to her and straighten this out. He goes, I can't do that. Do you know who she is? Well, I, I just have to. I just have to have a face-to-face -face meeting with Eileen Lang to straighten out what it was you were doing with her. He goes, oh, my God, Mr. Berger, I can't do that. Along about now, I put a smile in my voice because Eileen Lang is Shania Twain. <laughs> and this was at a time when Shania Twain was, you know, the number one female singer in the whole world. And I knew that Eileen Lang was Shania Twain because of my pop music junkie habits. That came so, in handy. It did. Very handy. It did. It did. Well, gosh. Our show is just about over. GJ, we want to thank you for being our guest. We would appreciate your uh, you sharing all the information that you've shared with us. We cannot tell you how much we appreciate the time that you've spent with us. This has been just an amazing episode. Thank you so much. Well, thank yeah, you. You've given, you get, you've given us so much really, really good information that um, I'm sure our listeners are going to take a lot of gems out of this. I, I really do. So excellent, excellent job on this. Well, well, thank you, uh, both of you. Um, it's, it's been an honor and a, and a couple goosebumps bump moments for me, too. Oh, that's great because we have just enjoyed it so much. Remember, everyone, you can go to MythBehaving.com for more information about G.J. Berger and links to his books. You can also read his bio. And we're his friends, so we want to promote him. So go buy his book. And you can find his links to his social media there. And don't forget, you can download this episode on iTunes or listen to it right on the MythBehaving.com website. Please take a moment to leave us a positive feedback on iTunes. That's how we move up that iTunes ladder. 
And don't forget, you can subscribe to iTunes and us, or subscribe to us on iTunes. Boy, let me spit that one out. If you have a topic or guest you'd like us to consider, our our guest list right now is booked pretty, pretty full. But if you do have a topic, by all means, shoot us a, an email and we will definitely consider it. And thanks for tuning in to Myth Behaving. We'll see you again next time. I'm Carla. And I'm Mare. And we are Myth Behaving, where reality meets fantasy. See you soon. <laughs>